This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge with you on RN. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. I got a letter the other week from a junior philosopher called Bella, who's one of the students at Auburn South Primary School in Melbourne. Hi, Bella. The letter posed some tricky questions about the whole enterprise of philosophy, the trickiest one being the question, do you think that philosophy solves many problems? Well, I have to be honest, I had to think very hard about that question, and I'm still thinking about it, because on one hand, you could say that, of course, philosophy solves problems, that's what it's for. But then on the other hand, you could say, as many people do, that philosophy doesn't really solve problems at all. It just keeps chewing over them like a dog with a bone. The centuries pass, the books keep getting written, but we're still no closer than we ever were to getting the final answer on questions like, are we conscious? Why is there something rather than nothing? And so on. So it was at this point that I decided to call in an expert. Suppose that I'm right and that, you know, there is progress in philosophy uh, somewhat in the way that there is in other fields. It remains the case that many people, both inside and outside the discipline, don't believe that. They somehow think that there is no progress in philosophy. And moreover, they sort of feel that that, that belief is somehow obvious. It's sort of they somehow know in their bones that philosophy is just somehow not the right kind of subject for which one can talk about progress sensibly. So why do people believe this? Why indeed? That's another excellent question, and we will get to it. Daniel Stolger is Professor of Philosophy at the Australian National University in Canberra. He's also the author of a recent book titled Philosophical Progress in Defence of a Reasonable Optimism. Daniel believes that there is progress in philosophy, but what counts as progress? For me, philosophy will make progress when we come to know the answer to a philosophical question or we come to know the solution to a philosophical problem. And the more questions we know the answer to, the more progress we will have made. So sometimes people uh, think of that as a epistemological notion of progress, meaning a notion of progress that's connected to knowledge, because when you answer a question, you presumably know the answer to the question, and the more you, the more questions you answer, the more you know. So the idea is that we make progress if we know more about philosophical topics or philosophical questions than we we knew in the past. That notion of progress is importantly different from other notions that people might have in mind. One notion is a very general one that we use often, you know, if I'm cleaning the bathroom or something, you ask me, have you made any progress? And, and that means, how close are you to achieving your aim? In that notion of progress, you don't really make progress as such, you only make it relative to an aim. And in a certain sense, you can make progress on anything, just in a sense because you can have any aim at all. You could have the aim of, you know, writing a philosophy paper or playing better golf or whatever, and you can make progress on, on all of those aims. And the epistemological notion of progress, I think, is a restriction of that more general notion where the aims in question are epistemological in the sense that they're aims of coming to know certain things, coming to know the answers to questions in philosophy, for example. Sure, but if we talk about answers to questions, a lot of people say that this is precisely what philosophy doesn't provide. I mean, Francis Crick, he, he, he said once that um, philosophers have never successfully solved a problem. What usually happens is that some philosophical problems end up as scientific ones and then they get solved by scientists. Um, Stephen Hawking famously claimed that philosophy is dead for, for more or less the same reason. Is it significant to you that these figures were, were both scientists and that perhaps it's a common misconception that, that we should judge philosophical progress against the model of scientific progress? 
Yeah, people often say that because they feel that it's somehow obvious that philosophy can't make progress if you understand progress on the scientific model. And that's probably one of the things that's going on in, uh, in the quotations from uh, Crick and Hawking that you, that you mentioned. Actually, uh, in my own work, I, I actually do understand philosophical progress on the model of scientific progress very roughly. I mean, I, what I typically do is assume something which is not obvious to lots of philosophers of science, but it's something that I think is rather plausible, namely that there is progress in the sciences, and then ask whether there's any reason to treat philosophy differently from progress in the sciences. And uh, so in that sense, the, the issue for me is set up in such a way that philosophical progress is understood on the model of scientific progress. I mean, having said that, one needs to understand scientific progress in, a, in the right kind of way. I mean, I think in general, one can understand science and scientific progress in at least two ways, a broad way and a narrow way. In the broad way, you know, it's a matter of coming to know certain things about the world. And again, you use that epistemic notion of progress. You come to, in science, one comes to know more about the world than one knew in the past. And in that sense, different parts of science just come to know different parts or different aspects of the world. So in chemistry, you come to know about the chemical parts of the world, or in history, you might come to know about certain historical parts of the world. And from that point of view, I think one can think of philosophy as, roughly speaking, uh, a kind of science, because it's a kind of inquiry into the nature of the world where we're trying to come to know something. Often, though, we have a much more restricted notion of science and scientific progress in mind, where the knowledge in question is of a very very highly specific sort. Right? Sometimes it's thought of as knowledge of what philosophers call natural kinds, for example, which are certain kinds of properties that are governed by quite specific empirical laws or perhaps can be formulated mathematically or perhaps investigated experimentally. That's a much more restricted notion of scientific progress. And I, and I don't think that it's plausible to think of philosophy on that model. But if, if one just has a, a much more general model of scientific progress, then I think there's no problem about um, understanding philosophical progress on that model. There's something about Francis Crick's point, though, that interests me when he says that philosophy is a field that illuminates issues that then get taken up by other disciplines and solved elsewhere. I mean, in some ways you could say that's an attractive idea because it removes the necessity for philosophy to solve anything on its own. It sort of takes philosophy off the hook, if you like. Is that something that, I mean, does, does, does that hold any appeal for you? It does hold some appeal, and it's certainly true that occasionally what happens is that we can think of philosophy as a kind of proto-science or pre-science where you sort of work on a topic until it can be scientifically assessed. I think actually the historical claims for this are not as clear as somebody like Crick, I think, is assuming. Like, it's often assumed that sort of in the old days there were things people called philosophers who were distinct from scientists who were working on various topics and didn't really make very much progress, but perhaps clarified them a little bit, and then they handed them over to the scientists, and then the scientists kind of advanced the issue. I actually don't think that's true in many cases. I mean, for one thing, bear in mind that prior to, you know, roughly the 19th century, there wasn't really much of a distinction between science and philosophy. So there wasn't any question of there being some distinction between people who were philosophers and people who were scientists. And another thing is that uh, what I think often happens is not so much that problems you know, get put into the sciences, but rather that what appeared to be a single problem turns out to be rather different sorts of problems, different kinds of problems are discussed. 
I think the idea that somehow or other uh, philosophy just works on topics until they can be given over to sciences is a little bit of a misnomer, even though it's a very, very common idea. It's sometimes called the spin-off theory, the idea that philosophical questions are just scientific questions that nobody's thought of how to deal with yet. Well, can you give me an example maybe of a, of a philosophical problem that has been settled to more or less universal satisfaction? Yeah, my favourite example of such a problem is the mind-body problem as formulated by Descartes. People never quite believe it when I say this to them, but I think that problem has been solved, more or less, as you say, to, to universal satisfaction. The background, of course, is that Descartes, in works like the Meditations in the, in the 17th century, argued for the distinctness of, as he called, the real distinction between mind and body, the idea roughly that consciousness or thought was distinct from matter and therefore that a certain kind of dualism in the philosophy of mind is true and, and that a certain kind of materialism was false. And we can ask, you know, what happened to that question? It was, a, it was widely discussed in Descartes' time. His contemporaries like, um, you know, Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia and uh, Thomas Hobbes and, and others uh, criticised what he said. But uh, we can ask what happened to that dispute uh, over the mind-body problem. Now, kind of a pessimist, uh, perhaps a crick or a hawking might say, well, the same problem is still, uh, is still being discussed today. Philosophers are still banging on about it. There's just no, apparently no progress but I think that kind of remark doesn't really focus on the way in which Descartes, in fact, formulated the question, because uh, what was crucial to his question was not simply a, an issue about the relation between uh, the mind and the body, but what was crucial to the way that he thought about it was uh, a particular understanding of what the body was or what the mind was. And in particular, he thought that matter was extension in space. He, th he had a kind of geometrical understanding of matter. And moreover, that wasn't just a, a kind of historical point about the sort of epistemological setting of his argument. It was actually crucial to the argument because what's crucial to the argument is, is having, as he put it, a kind of clear and distinct idea of matter and mind. It was only if you had a clear and distinct idea of matter in mind that you could argue for the certain kind of dualism. And if matter was extension in space, then the idea that we have a clear and distinct idea of it is is relatively plausible within the confines of, uh, of Descartes' discussion. On the other hand, the notion that matter is extension is something that was uh, roundly rejected. It was rejected by Newton, for example, and was rejected by many and is rejected by contemporary philosophy as well, at least as, as uh, Descartes was understanding that notion. So the notion that matter is extension uh, has gone away completely. Nobody accepts that at the moment. And uh, if you don't accept it, then you just simply do not have the form of argument that Descartes offered. That form of argument is not persuasive. And that's something which, so far as I know, is is settled more or less to universal satisfaction, to use your phrase. So, so that's a kind of a question where the mind-body problem, as Descartes formulated it, is, uh, has been resolved. Now, of course, having said that, I don't deny that there are lots of questions still at issue about the relationship between the mind and the body. There are questions on the same sort of subject uh, matter that he was concerned with. But uh, it would be wrong, I think, to assume that just because a field uh, raises a certain question about a subject matter but doesn't make the subject matter go away, that it's, that it's not making any progress because that sort of thing happens in many, many fields. So when we observe that philosophers are, as you say, still banging on about the mind-body problem, it's not really the mind-body problem. Maybe that's the misconception that we're talking about it as if it were a discrete problem, whereas actually it's more like a topic. It's more a sort of a cluster of concerns, which 
which change over time. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I think when we use the phrase the mind-body problem, it's incredibly easy to fall into the habit of thinking that there is a sort of single issue here or perhaps there's a single kind of piece of information which will somehow resolve the problem. And then when we look over the history of discussion of the issue, we notice that no one has come up with that special piece of information. And it's very easy to fall into a kind of pessimistic kind of way of thinking about the issue. You know, think about it like, you know, historians might be interested in the Reformation. The Reformation is a kind of big subject matter uh, that historians might be interested in. Likewise, philosophers and other other researchers as well may be interested in the mind-body problem, understood as the relation between the mind and the body broadly construed or the mental and the physical broadly construed. And this is a sort of a subject matter about which we can ask lots and lots of different questions. Descartes asked a particularly clear and a particularly influential kind of question about that subject matter, a question which it seems to me has been resolved, as I mentioned, but it doesn't mean that the subject matter has gone away. And in present inquiry, we ask somewhat different questions about the same subject matter. On RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. My guest this week is Daniel Stolger, Professor of Philosophy at ANU in Canberra. We're talking about the question of whether or not there's progress in philosophy. Daniel, you've argued, and I find this really interesting, you've argued that the belief that there's no progress in philosophy is encouraged by the institutional setting of philosophy. How is that the case? Yeah. So if we think of universities, I mean, universities, of course, are complicated institutions that have lots of different uh, goals themselves. But two of their goals are things like the preservation of knowledge through scholarship. That would be one sort of goal. And another goal is the advancement of knowledge. And it's very often thought, I think, that philosophy contributes somehow to the first goal, that uh, that it's, it's really a matter of preserving uh, what we know about things. I mean, often when you say to people that you're a philosopher, you get the question back, uh, uh, you know, who's your favorite philosopher? And uh, it's fairly clear that when people ask that, what, what they have in mind is the idea that you you must be engaged in a certain kind of scholarly discipline. It must be that you know about, you know, Nietzsche or Schopenhauer or, or Kripke or somebody. And of course, that's true for some people. And some work in philosophy does fit that model. But much work doesn't fit that model. But what I'm interested in is the idea that it betrays a certain understanding of what philosophy could possibly be. Philosophy must be a kind of discipline that's... Um, kind of set up on the model of, say, religious studies or literary biography or something, where you where you work on what people, say, have thought about philosophy rather than work on philosophy itself. Now, if you think of philosophy that way, then it's, it's quite natural to think that it doesn't make progress. Of course, it can make what philosophers sometimes call a kind of second-order progress. You can learn more about what Kant or Schopenhauer or Kripke or Quine uh, believed, uh, but nevertheless, one doesn't make first-order progress in the sense of trying to actually solve philosophical questions. That's not what the inst- discipline is set up institutionally to do. So I think it's it's very common to have that belief about philosophy, and I think that's greatly encouraged by the institutional setting. So we're talking about the way in which the institutionalization of philosophy gives rise to misunderstandings about philosophy among non-philosophers, but then there are plenty of professional philosophers who also believe that there's no progress in philosophy. What's, what's up with them? 
Yeah, good good point. <laughs> uh, um, that's true. So the the thing that I mentioned so far doesn't really help as far as in you know people internal to the discipline believing that. And it is remarkable uh, that so many people say that there's no progress in philosophy. I think in that case, the institutional setting also plays a role, however, because it's it's very easy to articulate certain models of what philosophy can be about, which are broadly consistent with the sort of inst- with its institutional setting, which again encourage the view that there's no progress. So one model is the model that we mentioned earlier, the sort of so-called spin-off. Uh, model or the idea that philosophy is a somehow an enabler discipline or a facilitator of uh, of other sorts of more straightforward scientific kinds of enterprises. An even more influential view, I think, about what philosophy is concerned with is sometimes called the sort of placement problem idea. And the idea there is something like we should think about philosophical problems as so-called placement problems, where placement problems are problems about how to locate or fit or find certain apparently philosophically difficult notions like the mind or morality or free will within a space of facts or a space of claims which by themselves don't raise philosophical uh, questions. So this this kind of view is very, very common in analytic philosophy in the last hundred years or so. And there's there's certainly some truth to this way of thinking about philosophy. But I think, strangely, it also encourages the view that there's no progress in philosophy, mainly because it tends to encourage the view that as far as philosophy is concerned, we can proceed as if all the relevant facts are in. Uh, if you think of a philosophical question as a placement question, you're assuming that all of the relevant facts are in and you're asking what is the place among those facts for claims about the mind or claims about morality and so forth. And if you think that all of the relevant facts are in and yet you still have disagreement then it's very natural to think that the disagreement at issue is a very special kind of disagreement because it couldn't be resolved by learning some, getting some new information because all of the relevant information is already in. And so it's, I think, rather, I think these, these models of philosophy which are greatly encouraged by its institutional setting and are quite plausible independently, I should say, um, are ones which play a role in generating the belief that there's no progress. Is what we're talking about here, though, an issue primarily for analytic philosophy? Because if, if you take away the notion that philosophy is supposed to arrive at, at fixed truth, for example, and you follow a more pragmatic route or a, or a continental postmodern route, if you like, does the problem still exist? I mean, it seems then that we're maybe done with the idea of pessimism and that pervasive lack of agreement could be something to be embraced or even celebrated. Yeah, it's true that in my own work on this topic tends to, you know, as a matter of philosophical genre, if you like, is a, is a, is an example of analytic philosophy. There's sort of a lot of a lot of attention to arguments and objections and replies and so forth. And in addition to that, I tend to presuppose ideas which, while not universally endorsed by analytic philosophers, generally are, are at least well known by them. So, as I mentioned, I tend to presuppose that a notion of progress is perfectly applicable and completely correct when it comes to the sciences. And then the question is, is it likewise applicable in the case of philosophy? And so it's true that you might suspect, well, what happens if you dropped all those assumptions, if you dropped all those assumptions that are somewhat typical of of, uh, of analytic philosophy, what would happen to the topic then? I think myself that not that much would happen to the topic, but I think that's a sort of somewhat controversial view. The reason I, th- I think that is, well, there are really two reasons. The first reason is, 
I think people who want to, as you say, follow a more pragmatic path, I think the crucial question to ask them is whether they want to follow that path just in the case of philosophy or whether they want to follow it in general for many other fields of inquiry. Now, if they want to follow it in general, then I think the sort of comparative issues that in a sense I'm interested in will arise again. The way that I'm thinking about the issue is something like this. Assuming that there's progress in certain fields like in certain sciences, is it the case that there's analogous forms of progress in philosophy? And so that's really a comparative question about philosophy and other sorts of fields. The question is whether philosophy is peculiar, to use a phrase that uh, that Wittgenstein used and um, and the philosopher Bernard Williams also used in, in connection to philosophy. That's sort of a comparative issue. And I think that comparative issue would arise for someone who's a pragmatist or a continental philosopher or a postmodernist philosopher uh, in the same kind of way. And there would still be the question of whether there's a similarity or difference. Admittedly, the similarity or difference wouldn't be expressed in the way that I do, but I think one could certainly raise the question about the similarity or difference there. On the other hand, you might try to adopt a kind of pragmatic or perhaps postmodern route uh, focusing just on philosophy. And in other words, not have that view uh, in the case of other other subjects, then the issue would be very different. But on the other hand, that would raise a lot of questions as to what would justify uh, that somewhat selective approach. Why why should philosophy be treated differently? And in a way, that's kind of the issue that I, I've been interested in anyway. Well, you approach this question with what you've called reasonable optimism. Can you tell me what that means exactly and the extent to which it's perhaps based on the hope that we will one day get to the bottom of major philosophical issues about whether we're free or conscious or what the fundamental moral truths are? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a kind of a reasonable optimist uh, in, <laughs> in a number of ways. I mean, one is I'm, I'm an optimist in the sense that I think we have in fact solved philosophical questions, as I've mentioned, and I think that that gives us reason to believe that uh, we can solve them in the future. So that's one way in which I'm a, I, I try to claim to be a reasonable optimist. Another way is that a lot of people who have addressed this question, and I think I sometimes get this reaction as well, sometimes people, when they hear that you're defending um, progress in philosophy, what they expect you to do is to sort of come up with some new methodology or something or some new way of uh, formulating and clarifying and solving philosophical questions. Uh, which is, you know, will finally put philosophy on the sure path to science, you know, that sort of idea. And uh, I definitely do not hold that view. I mean, for one thing, I don't hold that view because I don't think that there is some special methodology for philosophy. I'm a kind of person who thinks that philosophy and many other fields are pretty much are the same as far as methodology goes. And of course, another problem is I do not have such a methodology and never claim to have one. So I'm, that would be a kind of unreasonable optimism in a certain sense, a re, an optimism which is kind of basically overly optimistic. And I, don't, I certainly don't hold any view of that kind. What I basically think is that um, uh, given the historical facts as we usually assume them to be, like the facts about Descartes' discussion of the mind-body problem that I mentioned before, then as long as we think carefully about what kinds of questions are at issue in philosophical discussions, when we have one question and when we have a slightly different question, when we have a question on the same topic as the question before but a different question, if we focus carefully on that kind of issue, if you like, on the sort of analysis of what the questions are exactly and how they change over time, then I think uh, we'll begin to see that the pattern of 
success and failure in philosophy is actually not that different from the success and failure in, in many other fields. Not the really dramatic cases like the case of physics, but just as in many other sorts of fields. And that's a sense in which I, I hope to be a kind of reasonable optimist. Daniel Stolger, Professor of Philosophy at the Australian National University in Canberra and the author of Philosophical Progress in Defence of a Reasonable Optimism. And my name's David Rutledge. I am reasonably optimistic that I'll be back next week with another Philosopher's Zone. So join me then. And in the meantime, of course, check us out online at abc.net.au slash rn. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a message on the website. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for your company. Bye for now. <laughs>